0: and the Son, and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Well, as usual, uh, Mark's details are economical at best. He tells the story that Amy just read for us as though we know how and why it happened, which, of course, we don't. He tells us that Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, He saw Peter and Andrew casting their nets into the sea. He said to them, follow me. And immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Moments later, the story says, the same scene is reenacted with two other brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And they, too, leave the family business, and they follow. I can see in my mind's eye, Zebedee, Good old Zeb sitting there in his boat as the brothers grab their windbreakers and head down the dock, sitting there wondering, what did I do wrong? Where are they going? If only Mark would tell us more about why they did what they did, that made the disciples drop nets and immediately follow. If only there could have been an interview with 60 Minutes or Fox News, the New York Times, or the Wall Street Journal. some journal. Somebody would have coaxed out of them what it was that they saw that day, what crossed their minds. It might shed some light on how he comes to us today and how we are to respond. We can only guess why they followed. Maybe it was the opportunity to do something extraordinarily different, something serendipitous and unexpected. Maybe it was the call to adventure. It wouldn't take much to have me want to leave the fishing business. Really, the long hours, the early mornings, the physical drain, just the always smelling like fish would be enough, frankly, for me. You and I know something about the boredom of heaving our nets day after day, casting ourselves out into the ongoing traffic, sitting in front of the same computer screen, preparing the same lesson plans, eating the same PB&J in your own little cubicle. We dream of something better, anything to get us out of the rut, So maybe the disciples were just looking for new adventures. Maybe. Perhaps. But I doubt it. They would soon be living on the road with only their sandals and a knapsack to keep them going. They were homeless, living always on the hospitality of others, not always welcomed where they went. It was a routine that would soon grow old. No, if it was only chasing a new adventure that they wanted, it might explain why they left their nets, but not why they didn't come back to them. Some people think that they dropped everything that day because of something that they saw in Jesus' physical appearance, some magnetic, charismatic nobility about him. Artists have tried to capture this with auras and halos, and you know as well as I do that every movie that comes out about Jesus, he has those eyes, those eyes that just suck you in. But of course, in all likelihood, it wasn't that either. He was, after all, no different in appearance than any of them. A Galilean, less white probably than we imagine him, a carpenter by trade with big, calloused hands. Isaiah the prophet, hundreds of years earlier, had said that the coming Messiah would be one who had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his his appearance that we should desire him. No, it must have been something more, something more substantive than that. Perhaps it was his message. I mean, he started traveling around announcing the good news. The time is fulfilled, he said. The kingdom of God is near. If the disciples had heard even that much, it might have been just enough to open the door a crack. But I think what blew them away What got into them that morning and made them drop everything and go after him was not so much what they saw in him, but what he saw in them. Sometimes you know that's all it takes, someone to believe in you, someone who sees more in you than you see in yourself, and who tells you so. I can still remember the time my old high school basketball coach, Bob Clark, I heard from him just this Christmas in a beautiful card. We were playing one-on-one in the school gym, and for the first time, I beat him. He was the starter for the Iona basketball team. This was no small deal. And he took me aside, and he said, Pete, if you can beat me, you can beat any guy that you will see this year. It was because of what he saw in me that my high school basketball career, limited as it was, enjoyed any success at all. Sometimes, that's all it takes. Come, follow me, he said. I will make you fish for people. It was a greater thought. It was a broader purpose for their lives than they had ever imagined. And I think it was enough to make these otherwise unlikely men something that they never would have become on their own had they not heard that voice saying, Come and follow me. They didn't become disciples in that moment, you know. Dropping their nets was immediate, not discipleship. The promise, after all, is in the future tense. If you follow, I will make you fishers of others. Sort of like, if you build it, they will come. So they followed, I think, because of what he called forth in them. Do you remember your call to follow him? Have you heard it yet? Because he does call, even today. Not always in some blinding light that uh, you know, causes us to stop dead in our tracks. Typically not in some mysterious voice from heaven. But most often, in the common experiences of our daily lives. Lives with the common people with whom we live and move and have our very being and find our meaning. He called to me years ago when I was backpacking through the British Isles at a lake called Water. He called to me as I worked, literally by a lakeside at a YMCA camp in New York. He called to me in the voice of this congregation 30 years ago as, in the next couple of weeks, he calls Melanie and Aaron and Patty to come and work alongside Terry and Donna and Alan and Beth and Jan McCaddy. He has called Anders, through the voice of this congregation, to leave Missouri and come all the way to Michigan to be your new pastor. He has called you together. It wasn't just Peter and Andrew. It was Peter and Andrew, James and John, and all of them together, whom he called to do things that they could not yet imagine. After all, 30 years ago, who would have said that a dying congregation would become one of the most vital church redevelopments in the history of this presbytery? Who would have said that a little band of disciples, in, of all places, Berkeley, would become a real force in making this denomination more inclusive? He called Peter and Andrew, James and John, and all of them together, and today he calls you. You wonder, what could he see in me? But then what did he see in them? And you wonder, what what might he be calling me to do? But of course, it is only in following that you actually figure that out. I have told this story before, but I just love it. It's a true story um, that my colleague John Walton told about a flight that he took from Philadelphia to Asheville, North Carolina. He was on his way to the Montreat Conference Center, the Presbyterian Conference Center, where he was to preach uh, at a workshop on music and worship. I'm going to let him tell it in the first person because it's best that way. John writes, I have a wonderful travel agent and she makes good arrangements for me. She always gets me on the aisle because she knows that I have this kind of mindset when I get on a plane. I get out my book when I sit down, and I put it right there in front of me, sort of like this. I really don't want to get into exchange with any of the people around me. So as usual, I got on the plane in Philadelphia, I got out my book and I started reading. Now before the plane took off, a a couple with two children got on the plane. I really didn't have a chance to see the husband and the first child. They got in the row ahead of me. But the woman and the other child got in beside me. I I don't know what happened to their reservations. They must not have had the same travel agent. But in any case, there I was with my head buried in my book, keeping to myself. Before the plane took off, the woman nudged me. She said, it's his first time on a plane. I looked over at him, I said, well, who knows what will happen, trying to be polite, but not too much, and then I got back into my book. Pretty soon the plane took off and we were on our way. It was one of those cheap flights, they didn't serve any food, they only brought around some Coke, you know, in those little cocktail glasses that when they fill them with ice you get maybe three good swallows. They didn't give you the can, just the small plastic glass and one little bag of peanuts, which frankly at any other time you wouldn't eat, but you think to yourself, well, I paid for these. (laughs) Well, this family must have known it was a cheap flight because they had come prepared. The husband up in the front row was sort of getting food out and the woman next to me said Baby, will you pass the cookies? So over the top of my book, here comes this arm, you know, sort of through the seat, passing the Oreo cookies. Baby, she said in a few minutes, baby, could you pass the tuna fish sandwiches? So over come the tuna fish sandwiches, that aroma. A few minutes later, Baby, could you pass the oranges? Well, I wasn't sure whether it was one of the children or her husband that she was calling Baby, but I knew that they had come prepared. Well, we finally reached Raleigh, where I had to change planes, and having spent most of the flight buried in that book, I decided that I would take a look at Baby. You know, just sort of check out the situation. So I got up and I got my suitcase out of the overhead compartment and I started to stroll down the aisle and I took a look, just a quick look, over my shoulder. And I'm telling you, there is no dinosaur on Jurassic Park as big as that man was. He was huge. He had taken up two seats. And he was wearing shorts, of all things. His legs were as big as my waist. He had wild, red hair, curling down to his shoulders. He looked like Attila the Hun. He had a huge, rose-colored tattoo on his arm, with a dagger through it. Scared me to death. And I kept thinking to myself, what in the world does this woman see in this man that she would call him, Baby? Till of course I realized that I was only looking at the outward things and she was looking with the eyes of love and she could see all the way down to his heart and his soul and that is how god sees us the eyes of love always see much more than what is there What might God see in you? What might God imagine for your life? No doubt more than you can see, more than you have ever imagined. For God sees us with the eyes of love, which always see more than what is there, much deeper to a worth that none of us have as yet fully appreciated. Really, if you had bet on Peter and Andrew, James and John and what they might have accomplished in their life before they met Jesus, I'm not sure you would have predicted very much. I'm not sure you would predict very much for us. We are uh, a unique lot, to say the very least. The most important thing, however, is not the unlikeness of us, Most important is that God calls us nonetheless. And I do wonder if you had told James and John, Andrew and Peter that day, all that lay ahead of them, the adventure, but also the struggles, would they have gone anyway? I don't know. I only know one thing that Jesus saw more in them than they saw in themselves. And for some quite remarkable, though also unexplainable reason, they listened and they followed him. And at the last, I think they wouldn't have wanted to miss a moment It was Albert Schweitzer, of all people, who wrote, He comes to us as one unknown without a name. As of old, by the lakeside, he came to those who knew him not. He speaks to us the same word, follow me, and sets us to the tasks which he has to fulfill in our time. To those who obey him, whether they be wise or simple, he will reveal himself in the toils and the struggles and the conflicts that they will pass through in his fellowship. And as an ineffable mystery, they shall learn in their experiences who he really is. He passes by and calls us now, come, follow me. Do you hear him?